Would you join me as we pray together? <clears throat> Father, this morning we are privileged to once again have opportunity to dip into this massive ocean of the love of Christ. And we pray, Father, that you may, by your Spirit, truly open the eyes of our hearts that we might, in some profound and real way, understand what is the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love you have for us in Christ. Toward that end, Father, we pray that we might hear the Spirit as he speaks through his word and that we might be drawn to you because we know your word is, re- is given to us to help us to know you. May we know you in spirit and truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we continue our study this morning in the attributes of God, uh, this morning we come to what I hope will be a brief overview of the love of God. Now this topic, the love of God, is too vast. It is too expansive for us to look in some exhaustive study here this morning. So here's what I plan to do. I'm jumping right in here. I'm going to tell you what my outline is, and we're just going to jump right into this study. Because there is widespread confusion about what we mean by the love of God, section one of my message today is going to be devoted to providing clarification. And we're going to look at getting the love of God into focus. What do we mean when we say God's love? And then secondly, since there are a number of people question or they doubt God's love, We're going to devote the second point of the message this morning to a thoughtful consideration of the proof of God's love. So number two is going to be the proof of God's love. The third point of my message this morning is going to be setting forth, excuse me, setting forth a number of practical applications as we attempt to explore our response to the love of God. We can talk and think about and marvel at God's love, but what does it mean when we respond to it in appropriate ways? Let's look at our first point then, getting the love of God into focus. Well, the Bible contains the following well-known affirmation. I'm sure many of you have heard this time and time again. God is what? Love. 1 John chapter 4. And that, of course, tells us that love is an essential part of God's nature. But the fact that the word love carries so many associations and a broad range of meanings in today's world, many of our assumptions about the love of God uh, oftentimes become muddled. And when people sort of, uh, they think one thing when it mentions God's love with with something else the Bible may mean. And people are all over the map. One particular author I read this week summarized the view that many people have of God. And they think that God is a benign, heavenly Father who is tolerant, affable, lenient, permissive, devoid of any real displeasure over sin, who, without consideration of His holiness, will benignly just pass over sin, accept people as they are. That's what we mean when we say that God is the God of love. Now, this description of God, unfortunately, resonates with a lot of the sensibilities of 
modern people today. People think, oh, that kind of God, I sort of like that God. But we need to be careful here. Before we impose our assumptions of what we think God must be like when we hear that God is love, we need to heed the warning, and I've recorded, I think I put it in your notes there, from the great preacher A.W. Tozer. And this is what he warns. He says, Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other sin is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a libel on God's character. The idolatrous heart assumes God is other than he is and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. And the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. And then he quotes Romans 1.21. When they knew God, wrote Paul, they glorified Him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, in order to avoid this idolatrous thoughts about God, we need to spend a few moments exploring what the Bible says about the love of God. So I'm going to take a very brief moment here and give you a couple of examples of the kinds of aspects of God's love that set it apart and help us define what God's love really is like. As I do that, I want to give you what I found is a very helpful biblical summary of what God's love is, written by Paul Washer. I should have given you this in your notes. I didn't. So uh, here's a helpful summary of what we mean when the Bible talks about the love of God. It is a divine attribute that moves God to freely and selflessly give himself to others for their benefit or for their good. Okay, so it's a divine attribute where God is moving freely and selflessly to give himself to others for their benefit, for their good. Now, this self-giving on the part of God is obviously one of the great things that's celebrated throughout the pages of Scripture. From front to the, of the cover to the back cover, we hear time and time again of the greatness of God's love. Now, whereas most people promise to love and often fail to follow through with their commitment to give themselves to others, we have to say, first thing about God's love is, God's love is an unfailing love. Unfailing. When the children of Israel claimed that God had forsaken them, and that God had somehow forgotten about them, God responded in this way in Isaiah chapter 49. He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you, says God. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And so we talk about God's love. It is a love that is unfailing. He is not going to turn his back on those on whom he has placed his love. Secondly, while human sentimental love comes and goes, God's love, secondly, is eternal. Jeremiah chapter 31 gives us a very important verse. I have loved you with an everlasting love, a love that preceded time. Ephesians chapter 1 goes and, and explores this mysterious realm that we can't even fathom or understand. In Ephesians 1, we read that God, when he chose us before the foundation of the world, and in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. There is an eternal aspect of God's love that is mysteriously wonderful, 
uniquely setting him apart from all the other love in this world. Thirdly, we know that some of us, for a time, may give ourselves to help other people. Yes, there are expressions of love on a human level, but God's love is infinite. Infinite, number three. It cannot be fully measured or fathomed. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul prayed that his readers would be able to comprehend what is the breadth, the length, the height, the width of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. You'll never fully understand all of God's love. It is beyond full knowledge. Number four, when the giving of ourselves starts to interfere, when we actually start acting out of some sort of love we have our, on our own level, we actually help someone else or get involved in their issues and problems, and it starts, though, to interfere with our preferences, and it begins to demand too much of us. Our desire oftentimes is that love, at that moment as we choose to love, it somehow evaporates. This is too difficult, too hard. I don't want to give up this. This is too uh, challenging for me, too disagreeable. But God's love, number four, is a costly love. His love gives even at great cost to himself. And Jesus taught that greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends, John 15. And Jesus did just that. He laid down his life for those he came to save. And John 3.16, God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son. Another costly gift when you think and ponder the significance of what that giving entails. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Number five, you still with me? Number five, another aspect of God's love is this. God's love is great. I love this verse. Ephesians chapter 2, we read that God's love is described as God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. It's no wonder that one particular author, uh, Trevor Francis, compared God's love to the ocean. And sometimes when I go, into, we're blessed to live near an ocean. We're just a short drive away from seeing an ocean or a sound. And you go and look at the vastness of that huge body of water. And think about these kind of words coming to your mind as you just think about the greatness of God's love. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, un boundless and free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. What a great analogy uh, is made by thinking of the greatness of God's love, comparing it to the ocean. Here's another one last description. I could give on and on and on in this direction, but I want to make, here's one more important aspect about God's love. God's love is uninfluenced. Uninfluenced. What do you mean by that? Well, there's nothing in the object of God's love that would attract or prompt him to love those objects. For example, God's love is free. It's spontaneous. He owes no one the uh, graciousness of his love. His selfless giving is not an obligation to anybody. He does so of his own choosing. On his own accord, he chooses to bestow his love on those who don't deserve it. And one example of that, of course, is Deuteronomy chapter 7, where we read, 
as he speaks to the Israelites as they're leaving the land of Egypt and getting ready to enter the promised land. And because they're probably likely to start thinking, well, you know, we're better than everybody else, and we're, we're, we're certainly a greater society than other people. That's why God has shown us his love. Moses speaks to that. Seventh chapter of Deuteronomy says, The Lord did not, did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. There was nothing great or impressive about you that would cause God to place his love on you. That's a very significant point to understand. In 1 John chapter 4, we read that we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. Not because he's responding to our love to him. We're responding to his love because he initiated the love of his own accord. Now, these are just a few of the biblical affirmations about God's love, but I just would summarize to say, and we could go on and on all morning with different aspects of God's love, I would just say this. God's love is unequaled, it is unfathomable, and indeed, it is unbelievably wonderful. That's the love of God. Now, having said that, I want us to move now to our second point. I want us to consider the proof of God's love. I'm aware that some people are questioning and have questioned their lives. Maybe they're questioning even today. Wait a minute now. How could God be characterized by this kind of love you just described? Because if you look around, you'll notice uh, the world in which we live, many people are dealing with the fact that they, they, they see what goes on in the world of their own experience and they say, well, listen, I'm struggling to embrace the concept of a loving God when I see so much evil, I see so much corruption, I see so much suffering and injustice in this world. How then do you know? How can you really be sure that the Bible that claims that God is this loving God, how do you really know that's true? I realize that some people are skeptical that God actually loves them. They may say it in their minds, but somewhere in their heart they just cannot seem to somehow grasp that and don't really believe it. Biblical writers consistently point to one primary proof of God's love. Now, we start by back, painting the picture and the whole backdrop, and that is what? First, we have a God who exists from all eternity, experiencing unending love among the members of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit, love between them forever and ever and ever, from eternity past to eternity future. And out of that love is a, is a choice to make all things. And so the whole world and whole universe is created, and the people who populate this tiny little planet in the huge cosmos, people like you and me, we are created by God and we're created for God. But all of us, as we have had to admit and had to have pointed out to us and what we've had to eventually acknowledge is that we have chosen to worship some aspect of the created order. We worship ourselves, we worship other people, what they think of us, or we worship the creation itself, the things that we can grab in this world, and we worship and give our devotion to them more than we do the God who made us, the God, the Creator Himself. That's Romans 1. As a result of this, all of us live under the curse of sin. We're under the threat of looming judgment. And since we've broken the laws of God, therefore we deserve to suffer eternal separation from the God who made us. We're enemies of God. We're helpless sinners in need of a new heart. <clears throat> and we're characterized by ungodliness, 
Romans chapter 5. And if God justly forgave us, what, if God justly gave us what we deserved, we would receive eternal condemnation. Now here's the proof of God's love. It is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Perhaps you're familiar with that verse. It's found in the redemptive mission of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. God demonstrates His love toward helpless, ungodly, rebellious sinners like us in that while we were in that condition, while we were at odds against God, while we were fighting against Him and not in agreement with all that He believes and all that He holds as valuable, Jesus Christ died for or in our place. He died for us in our place. Verse 6 of Romans 5, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 1 John 4 puts it this way, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. We don't really have life. The life that we're meant to live in communion with God, we don't have that life apart from the intervention of God's love through Jesus Christ. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. We said that earlier, read that earlier. What does that mean? It means that despite the fact that we deserve to be cut off eternally from God, God gave His own sinless Son, Jesus Christ, who was offered on that cross to satisfy, to appease God's holy justice. And when Christ died on that cross, we began to see a clear understanding now that God's holiness and God's love are not incompatible. Indeed, as one author, P.T. Forsyth, said, it is the holiness of God's love that necessitates an atoning cross. There has to be the payment for him as he expresses his love for us. There has to be someone who can make the debt that is owed paid so that we can have a relationship and truly be forgiven. And because God loves what is true and right, God therefore must hate all that is false and wrong. And the cross of Jesus displays for all to see the extent of the selfless, self-giving love that God the Father gave His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He loves as an atoning sacrifice to rescue and save wretched sinners, hopeless sinners like you and me. Now, you must hear this out, my friend. God did not wait until we improved ourselves before He took that step. He did not sit back and say, okay, let's see if these people are worth investing in. Jesus' undeserved death on that cross to rescue sinners like you and me is clear proof that He has freely and selflessly given Himself for our benefit, for our good, when we didn't deserve it. And the cross of Christ stands as an indestructible monument to the greatness of God's love. If you ever doubt it, you need to go to the cross. The cross is the evidence, the proof. And so let's think about that for a moment. I want us to take that statement of truth and I want us to work that out now in terms of various ways of practical, what do we do with this? 
I want us to look at responding to the love of God. First thing I want us to think about is have you ever personally responded to the truth of what I'm saying about Jesus revealing and demonstrating his love to you by laying down his life on that cross for you? You see, it's important to understand this is not just some sort of generic concept. It's just not some sort of fact that you can affirm and then just go off and live your life. This is something that is designed to be what? A humbling truth. A truth that brings you down to realize how unworthy we are. We don't deserve to have God giving us selflessly of himself, giving for, taking upon himself our sin, upon himself. And yet, as we ponder what Christ did for us on that cross, so selflessly giving of himself for our benefit, then it, like the Apostle Paul, it leads us from becoming a religious person to becoming a person who's what? Who's radically transformed who is blown away by the love of Christ and who's now understanding that the love of Christ is just not some concept about what God did out there. It's what God has done for me. And so Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not people out there, not the mass of humanity, He talks about personalizing it. Have you ever experienced the wonder of Christ loving you personally? Put your name in that blank. God so loved Mark Musser. That's unbelievable how he would love me. I don't deserve that love. That's the point. (laughs) That's the nature of his love. I'm convinced there are so many people who struggle to believe that God loves them. 1 John 4.16 says, We have known and believed the love that God has for us. That's what it means to be a Christian. We have known and we believe it. And yet so many of us, even if it was a point in the past in which we have claimed Christ's love for ourselves, there's a point later on in life where we sometimes say, you know, I don't really think God loves me. How could he love me? And I found some thoughts by R.W. Glenn to be so helpful here. When you think about the freeness and the depth of God's love for believers in Jesus Christ, there's a point at which you say, it's too good to be true. <laughs> it's just too good to be true. Sometimes, you know, you warn your kids, you say, if something sounds too good to be true, it's too good to be true. You know, when they open that little thing in the mail, it says, hey, you want something free? You say to yourself, wait, and oh, watch out. When you find something on the web promising you all this stuff, hey, if it sounds too good to be true, too, that's not true when it comes to Jesus Christ. Because we live in a world that operates as a system of meritocracy. That is, you have to, everything you, that happens in life, you achieve it, you earn it. Everything is about success and earning it and what you do to have to get ahead. So when we hear the gospel that the Father loved us so much that he sent Jesus to live a life that we could never live and to die a death that we deserve to die as a sheer gift by his grace, we're we're baffled. We're blown away. We're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. It's totally different than the world we're used to living in. So my friend, if you're struggling to believe that God loves you today, I'm urging you, I call you, I plead with you, Believe the gospel. Believe the truth. Embrace the truth of the gospel. Review the gospel again and again and again. Because remember, 
God's love for you is as certain as his love for his own son in the gospel. Because we are joined to Christ by faith. And so if the Father loves the Son, and He has to, and always will and always did, and, and there's nothing that will break that bond, then if we're in Christ, we share in that love eternally as we come to know Him through faith. And so, as you remember that God's love for you will never, ever change, you find yourself free. Free at some point to admit that when you doubt His love, and those moments when you question, say, I don't really think God loves me, that you must admit at that point that at the core of that statement, of that belief, is the fact that you are rooting, is those, those, that thought is rooted in unbelief and pride. Because what you're saying is, I don't take to face value what God is saying here. God is not speaking honestly here. Or that God has not done what he said he's done. Or that somehow I don't feel like I've qualified for his love. Whoa. Qualifying for love? There's the essence of pride bubbling up. And so when we question God's love, oftentimes what we have done is we're leaving ourselves an out that says, I can't imagine God loving me as much as he does, even when I'm doing the things I do and say the things I say. Therefore, I'm just going to say, I can't imagine him being that kind of a loving father. So I will, in my mind, say, surely he's not that loving which justifies some measure of our letting us live our own life and somehow living apart from fellowshipping with that kind of God. And so I call you, as I would call anybody, call myself, to repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and run right back into the arms of Jesus Christ. Knowing that even in your rebellion, even in your twisted thinking, even in your prideful thoughts when you question his love for you, even then you were and you always will be his dear child. There's so much more we could say about that, but you've got to make it personal, my friend. You've got to live that way every day. You have to go back and say, Lord, I don't feel loved, but I thank you that you've loved me when I don't deserve it. That's the point of your love. It is amazing. Secondly, another appropriate response to God's love. This is so simple, but it's really to love him in return, to love God. When Jesus was asked the question, what's the foremost command in the law? Well, what was his answer? It was rather straightforward, rather to the point and clear. He says, wholeheartedly love God. That's the main thing. The Apostle Paul, sorry, the Apostle John admitted, we love him because he first loved us. Because of Christ's love for us and God's love for us shown in Christ, then the response we should make is to love him. Love him. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, I would suggest some, on some level it means that we take to heart the wonder of God's selfless giving. And we ponder the cross. We ponder the crucifixion of Christ. We ponder the resurrection of Christ. We ponder the fact that look at the vastness, the greatness, the undeserved nature of God's love. Then it hopefully motivates us to realize that what God calls us to do is to what? Obey his commands. Just listen to what he says. Put the things he's spoken to us into, into, into practice. 1 John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God. That is our love for God that we keep his commandments. You say, oh man, not all those commandments. Oh, please. 
The verse goes on to say what? His commandments are not burdensome. They are not designed to ruin your life. They're designed to help you show here's the path of life. This is how I designed life to be lived. And when you love me, you'll find that this is a really a delightful way to live. Because you see my wisdom, you see my insights and my guidance for you that helps you avoid so many things that lead to death and destruction. There's more we could say about that too. I want to add another comment here about another way to respond to the love of God. And this is very simply just to imitate Jesus. If I am amazed by God's love, then I'm going to think more and more about how did God show his love? I'll look at Jesus, the life of Jesus. I will study his life. I will meditate on his life. I will watch how he showed love in ways that are just incredible. I can't do everything that Jesus did, of course. But because Jesus' love is, has a transformative power, we who have been blessed to be the recipient of his love, we are called to display love to those around us. Part of our memory verse involves this idea of what? Jesus commanded his disciples and says, love one another as I have loved you. That involved what? Washing feet? Boy, I guarantee those disciples did not forget that incident. I would have been very, very, very uncomfortable having Jesus wash my feet. But it would have been the best thing for me. Because what he was saying was, here is Jesus, the King of Kings, on his knees, serving, giving, helping others, thinking about the needs of others more than his own. And so the idea is what? We put love in practice just as God has loved us. I think about Christ, I imitate him. And loving God compels us to love other people to the degree that we already love ourselves. We are automatically loving ourselves all the time. How many of you have, have taken the time to invest in yourself by feeding yourself, bathing yourself, doing something you enjoy doing in the last 24 hours? Anybody forget to do that? Everybody's done that, right? We just automatically take care of me, me, me. Jesus says, you take that thing you already do for yourself, now let's do it for other people. And so we're to lay down our lives by sharing what? Our resources with people who are in need. 1 John 3. You begin to find that God loves the poor. God loves the people who are without. And that's where his heart is yearning to see more and more of love shown to people who have nothing and no one's to take care of them. And if we ignore or close our heart against a brother or sister we know to be a material need, we're not properly responding to the compassionate, selfless, giving God has shown us in Christ. God's love compels us to share our resources to other people who do not have enough and who are hurting. And sacrificing a self-indulgent life is the overflow of a heart that is truly grateful for the selfless God Selfless giving that God has given to us. So much more you could say about that. But the idea is what? Is to do what Jesus did. Jesus gave up all of the heaven and glory and what? Became poor that we might become rich. It's an amazing principle there. Letter D. Another practical response to God's love is not an easy one. Probably one of the most difficult things to do. It is to forgive those who sin against us. You can't escape this. It's so clear in the Bible. You just cannot run away from, if I know and treasure the love that God has for me, boy, it's going to lead to this horizontal issue of people who have hurt me and who have sinned against me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. 
the last part of the chapter says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, that's wishing other people would have bad things happen to them, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And then people stop there at the end of the chapter. Shouldn't have stopped. That's a terrible chapter division. You keep going to chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, we are loved by God. We are His children. He loves us so dearly. He's forgiven us in order for us to become His children. Walk in love. Live a life of love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God. You cannot escape those two. The two go together. God loves you. Now you've got to love somebody else by forgiving them. Jerry Bridges has a very helpful principle here as he expands on. And also another parallel passage there is 1 John 4, where he talks about forgiving your brother. He works out this implication of forgiving other people in the book of practice of godliness. He says this, So often we want to exact the last ounce of remorse from our erring brother or sister before we consider forgiving them, right? We want them to get down and grovel. You know, just get down there and just feel so miserable and you did such awful thing to me, I can't wait till you can just get down and beg for my forgiveness. See, that's what we want. Because we what? We're so aware of justice. We want justice. But God's love calls us to a higher standard. Forgiveness cost God his son on the cross. And forgiveness will cost us our sense of justice. We all have this innate sense deep within our souls, but it has been perverted by our selfish, sinful natures. And we want to see justice done. But the justice we envision satisfies our own interests. We realize that justice has been done that God is the only rightful administrator of justice in all creation and his justice has been satisfied and in order to forgive our brother or sister, we must be satisfied with God's justice and forgo the satisfaction of our own. What's he saying? Go to Matthew 18 and ponder what it means for you to be forgiven a debt of $10 trillion of debt and obligation you owe to God And then realize that the person who sinned against you has sinned against you a $10 debt. And if you've been forgiven $10 trillion, you telling me you can't forgive somebody a $10 debt? Then you don't know what grace is, my friend. You don't know what grace is. So the love of Christ results in a willingness to forgive. Let people off the hook. Give them promise. I will not hold this against you uh, any longer. I will forgive you. One final thing. Letter E, a practical response to the love of God involves trusting God. Trusting God when he chooses to chasten or discipline us out of his love for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. You've got to understand that God's love is a holy love. God wants to see his work in us refine us, make us more into the image of Christ. I'm going to quote here from A.W. Pink. I think this may or may not be in your notes. He says this, Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Christ was loved by the Father. Think about that for a moment. Jesus was loved by the Father from all eternity. And yet, 
Christ was not exempt from what? Poverty, disgrace, persecution. I add to that list my own thoughts. He was not somehow spared suffering or injustice or betrayal. It was not incompatible with God's love for Christ when he permitted men to spit on him and smite him. He says, then let no Christian call into question God's love when that Christian is brought under painful afflictions and trials. There is abundant cause for trust and patience when we undergo hardships in the providence of God. That is a huge concept that somehow is so hard to hang on to. When your life has fallen apart and you feel like life has hit the fan, the last thing that usually comes to mind is what? Thank you, God, that you love me. That's usually the moment when we begin to say, well, God, if you love me, come on, make it right. And we often overlook the reality that in the midst of God's love, he is refining his children for their good and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we feel like we've just skimmed the surface of this vast ocean. But Lord, we thank you for the refreshment that comes to our souls. Thank you for the hope that fills our hearts when you direct our hearts into your love. And so, Father, again, I pray that you might, by your Spirit, as we prepare to gather around the Lord's table today, Lord, make this a sweet time of communion, being lifted up, being washed over, being carried forth by the vastness and the wonder and the gloriousness of your love. Lord, draw us, we pray, to Christ to see the proof of your love for us in him and in his sacrifice on the cross. We pray that we might preach the gospel to ourselves today, Lord, and that in so doing, we would be filled with a great greatness of wonder at your love, not just in our minds, Lord, but in our hearts as we just celebrate and enjoy your sweet love. Lord, do this, I pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.